0: The sheer number of people who were lost each have families and and lost connections and went through, quite frankly, what sounds like a terrible death. People talk about how their lungs feel like they're on fire. A lot of immigrants come here and their qualifications are nullified. There is care work. That's why a lot of immigrants are in it, especially women. It's not a job that pays well, but it's a fulfilling job in that you're helping somebody.
1: For that reporting to have not evolved at all over the course of the pandemic was, was unacceptable, shocking, a disaster, a complete abdication of the role of the press in this country.
2: We spoke with one gentleman, he hadn't seen his wife for four months. And she had dementia and he could try and see her through the window, but she wasn't necessarily able to process that. And her condition deteriorated rapidly. And he said he he was suffering from intrusive thoughts. He couldn't stop thinking about her, worrying about her. Uh, And felt very helpless.
3: Welcome to COVID in the House of Old, a podcast about how the COVID-19 pandemic affected long-term care in Canada. And a broader look at the history that led us here and where change is needed. My name is Megan Davies. I'm a health historian at York University in Toronto. I have done research on aging, dementia care, home support, long-term care. But my lived experience with this topic goes back much further. As a child and a teenager, I witnessed my grandfather's struggle with my grandmother's declining mental and physical health. And then I went through my first significant mourning when he died. The opportunity to be close... To elders like my grandfather, meant that I had deeper understandings of old age from my youth. Like many of my female friends who also grew up in Victoria, BC, I worked with elderly people, biking across town to work as a homemaker. Then in my 40s, I juggled geography, parenting, and teaching to work with my siblings as part of a care network for our mother so she could stay at home until the end of her life. How sensible of my parents to have eight kids. When the pandemic hit in March 2020, I wasn't the least bit surprised when the carnage started in long-term care. I knew that these were considered second-rate institutions, that they were chronically underfunded and often poorly regulated, and that they were filled with very frail, very elderly people. But I was so sad. God, I was really upset. The terrible conditions, The dreadful deaths, like many people dying alone without access to the people who love them. When I finally managed to fly out to the West Coast for the summer, I cried my way across northern Ontario, the prairies, and the coastal range. How could Canadians have let this happen? As the summer wore on, the cruelty of the long isolation residents were experiencing became apparent. And then in the fall, the deaths began again. Seemingly, Canadians could keep film sets safe for commercial production, but vulnerable elders? No, we couldn't pull that off. It seemed inconceivable that we should just walk away from this. The COVID in the House of Old podcast is my long stoplight for Canadians because we have to unpack how it all rolled out. This podcast will hear from journalists, historians, caregivers, and residents to assess the devastating impacts that COVID had on long-term care, how the rights of elders and workers have been and continue to be taken away. And the podcast argues that there's a better way to do elder care, that change is possible, and that this is the moment when it could actually happen. And you know what? If we don't fix our elder care system, soon enough, we're going to be old and going, gee, why didn't I do something? Episode 1, COVID Comes to the House of Old.
2: That didn't shock me. But what it did shock me was seeing the photographs and images of uh, family members, daughters, sons, wives, relatives standing outside demanding to get in to see their loved one and not be able to do that because uh, the homes couldn't protect themselves and they couldn't protect the residents. On December
4: 27th, we kind of got wind that vaccines were in. A uh, little birdie kind of said to us, listen, we are going to probably choose a nursing home. Would you guys be um, interested in this? But we couldn't say anything. Okay. When my boss told me, I said, "Hmm, I'm on that, even if I have to stay at work all night.
1: The GoFundMe was a huge surprise. So I had been doing this daily death count for months and months and months. And some friends started this GoFundMe because, of course, this work is all completely unpaid. And it was just like just this amazing outpouring of thanks for the work. To have that all happen so quickly, like it was a couple of days, and it basically raised an annual salary for me. It was, it was just uh, amazing. I'll never win anything as, as wonderful as, as that. Just that to have that support from so many people from all corners of this country. This is all happening in a pandemic where we're all isolated.
3: People working in residential elder care didn't have the luxury of reflection in the moment. They were just working desperately to keep things safe and functioning. And to take care of residents. We will hear directly from two different care workers. Elder care is not an issue that typically engages activists or artists, though I would argue that it should. But there were some activists here in Canada, most notably journalist Nora Loretto, who grabbed hold of this subject and did not let it go. Finally, as a scholar, I know that researchers respond to almost everything in their lives, with head and with heart. So I wanted to ask academics how they made sense of the carnage in long-term care.
5: Well, we all saw the devastation that was happening in long-term care, not just in Canada, but in the six countries that we had studied, no, no question,
3: That's York University sociologist Pat Armstrong, who is one of the people that the media gravitated to when the pandemic hit long-term care. Pat has been a health researcher since the 1970s, and from 2010 to 2017, she headed up a large international project called Reimagining Long-Term Residential Care.
5: But... Uh, in addition to feeling as everyone did, just really awful, it also drew a lot of attention to long-term care that hasn't been paid for a very, very long time. And suddenly, our research that we had been doing for the last decade became extremely relevant, and people became very interested in it. And it started to have an impact greater than it was having before COVID. So, In some ways, it has shone a light on long-term care that I hope will last and hope will make a difference. Jim Struthers is a
3: Canadian historian who has a deep expertise in the welfare state and marginalized social groups. He was a key member of the Reimagining Research team. I asked him to tell me how it was for him when it became clear that COVID was going to cut a wide swath through elder care institutions.
2: I think what really drove it home, my first response was, it's going to be like SARS. So once you get a handle on it, um, in terms of containment, we'll be able to keep it out of our institutions. And then what became clear was much more infectious. The infection rate was much higher. Um, like everyone else, uh, I was unprepared. and uh, But I think, and shocked and, and dismayed. I think uh, when it really started to hit home, we were well aware of the vulnerability of nursing homes to infectious diseases. And then the big crisis comes along. It certainly shone a spotlight on a lot of things that we knew about, but we're not you know, not enough inspection, not enough training, not enough infectious disease control. It's not surprising that in COVID-19, the first priority would be preventing hospitals from having to take in people with COVID-19 or getting them out of hospitals into nursing homes so that there wouldn't be disease outbreaks of COVID-19 in hospitals to overflow their intensive care unit without giving the nursing homes the equipment or the infectious disease control or the training or the protective equipment they needed. And so when you start seeing these deaths from dehydration, which the military, Canadian forces discovered, when they went into these homes, when you see uh, stories about uh, family members, you know, relatives in, in homes, you know, lying in feces in, in their beds because they're not being changed. When you see stories of them uh, you know, effectively dying of loneliness because there's no social uh, interaction. Of they, they have, many of them have, uh, about 60 to 70 percent, have some form of dementia. They can't respond to people unless they really, really know them. And you take those people away. Caring staff are already leaving because they're getting sick or they're just qu- quitting the job because it's too dangerous. You know that's that's what that was the dramatic impact. It just shone a huge spotlight on institutional structure that was, had for a long time, woefully unprepared to deal with the crisis of this magnitude. When it happened, I wasn't surprised to see that this was the sector that was going to be affected most severely, and where the heartbreak and the loss and the and the sense of crisis, to the extent the military had to come in and and actually document through their own report, because the media weren't allowed in. The media could only interview people outside or phone up. Home managers and get their version, and the relatives couldn't get in to actually see what was happening. It was the military who got in to see, and, and then their reports that showed exactly how dire and desperate the situation was. That really was terrif- terrifying. And no wonder 80% of the deaths uh, in uh, Ontario of COVID 19 came in nursing homes in the first six months, uh, and 60% overall, and that's almost 4,000 people.
3: And Jim, you're a historian. So, you see this both through the rear view mirror and in the context of the pandemic, right?
2: What we saw was that um, nursing homes under COVID 19 paid the price for being overly medicalized in terms of the frailness of their population, but under resourced in terms of the equipment or supplies or staffing they had to deal with it. That had been in place for decades. There hadn't been a significant increase. In the number of nursing home beds in ontario since about 2004 so we'd gone almost a decade and a half without building new capacity and so we had inherited a lot of aging homes built in the 1970s and beyond and these were the homes often with four beds to a unit 32 bed floors or 62 bed floors with four beds to to a room divided by a curtain Not surprisingly, these were the beds where COVID-19 spread most quickly because you couldn't contain or quarantine with only curtains separating four people, coughing and sneezing and, you know, aerosol emissions into the air. Those were the homes which tended to be overrepresented in the for-profit sector because that's a sector that had uh, either bought older homes or had not expanded to modernized. These were also the homes where... There was the heaviest reliance on part-time workers, temporary workers, underpaid uh, personal support workers. So the staff were moving around to two or three jobs a week in different homes. They also were the homes that had the least supply of personal protective equipment. And so they were the ones, six of the seven homes in Ontario that experienced by April and May and June, the largest numbers of deaths uh, were the for-profit sectors. Rachel Barkin
3: is a sociologist of ageing. She has studied family caregiving. She's looked inside long-term care facilities. And she worked with me on a really fun project about home support. So, of course, I wanted to talk to her. But lucky me, I also got to visit with her four-month-old baby, Claire. Rachel, how did you react when COVID hit long-term care?
6: Maybe not terribly surprised um, in the sense that like the conditions that existed in long-term care prior to COVID meant there were very few defences when COVID hit. There was very little to protect workers and residents in long-term care. Certainly, long-term care came into the spotlight like never before with COVID. People were talking about it a lot more than they ever had previously, and it was getting a lot more attention. So... Certainly, there is an opportunity there to think through things and make a difference in what they're like. I think Claire agrees with that, too. To be a researcher is in some ways a very privileged position because we might research these care homes and these systems and think about them a lot. But then something like COVID happens and you're not in there. You're not doing anything about it. You're kind of just sitting on the sidelines and hoping that the research will at some point make a difference.
3: Jim. We know that the long-term care population has shifted dramatically over the last few decades, as governments have restricted it to only the most frail elderly. How about care for residents in the last stages of life during the pandemic?
2: We still haven't worked out the kind of training, the kind of skill sets to provide compassionate palliative care. COVID-19 just took that uh, and pushed it off a cliff because you know, we still don't know how many people you know, died of malnutrition or despair rather than the actual COVID-19 infection itself. We have the number of deaths due to COVID-19 in long-term care, which is always spectacularly high. But if you added on top of that unnecessary number of deaths from malnutrition and, and despair, it would be even higher. So much of the palliative care that was being done in nursing homes was done by family members and volunteers, and making it as uh, easy and, and loving a transition as it could possibly be. Then they suddenly disappeared for 46 months at a time.
3: Rachel and Jim also spoke about the sudden loss of family care, the invisible labour force in long-term care, when the lockdown happened in the spring of 2020.
6: I also thought a lot about the fact that all of a sudden family members weren't allowed in care homes. Probably in large part meant that there were a lot of needs that were unmet. So the understaffing wasn't just a question of, you know, there's not enough staff because people are sick or not working or whatever. But it's also like, we've just pulled out all these people who were doing all this work, like overnight. That I think is a huge problem and maybe not one that's, that's gotten as much attention. And maybe it's harder to, to prove or to count. But I think for those who have done research in long-term care, it, it's quite clear that that would be um, a really
2: big problem. What that underscored was something we knew is a lot of the work is being done, certainly by care and PSWs, is also being supplemented by family members who are there when there's not enough staff or to feed residents when they need to be fed or to uh, make sure their laundry is clean or to make sure their teeth are getting brushed or to make sure that they are that they're actually are eating their food, not just the food's being delivered to their room, but that they're actually eating it.
3: We've heard a pretty grim story from Jim and Rachel. Family caregivers shut out of long-term care. Residents dying of loneliness and dehydration. How the physical layout of facilities hastened the spread of infection. Now we're going to hear from two long-term care staff who were on the front lines in the spring of 2020.
4: Okay, so I'm a registered nurse with the City of Toronto.
3: That's Noreen Grange, who works at Castleview-Witchwood in Toronto.
4: In late 2019, we started hearing news about people getting ill in China by January 2020. We started having cases in Toronto and life kind of changed. In March, I was reassigned as the IPAC lead and all I concentrated on was infection control for Castleview Witchwood Towers. So our home is 456 beds. So I was given a team of two registered practical nurses.
7: So my title is actually an activity worker here at Hilltop House in the Sea to Sky region. It's a beautiful facility as well. You know, the, the built environment of the facility is we overlook one of the, the nicest pieces of rock. <laughs>
3: In uh, North America. And that's Michelle LeBlanc, who works at Hilltop House in the rock-climbing paradise of Squamish, B.C.
7: Our day-to-day tasks include organizing and creating recreation and leisure pursuits for the residents. So we have 85 residents.
4: By about April... We were totally shut down. We were not having any families visit the residents. So it was more challenging for us at that point because now we don't have the family members coming in to assist with feeding and stuff like that. So we were double-fold. We were working as nurses, working pretty much round the clock of trying to make sure the residents were um, comfortable. Staff was getting scared. People were getting sick. We were testing every week. It was challenging.
7: My experience, you know, in long-term care was largely shaped by COVID because I didn't really get a chance to work very long before the pandemic hit um, in long-term care. So just as I was sort of getting used to the swing of things, then you throw in a pandemic. And initially, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. Um you know, coming from both the residents, family members, as well as my
3: coworkers. Did you immediately think about long term care as vulnerable?
4: I did. I was scared because I know that long term care gets hit with regular influenza. If this was something that was worse than influenza, we had a few sleepless nights trying to figure out what we would do, how we would do it, what the next steps. And so, but um, because we're with the city of Toronto, we could have meetings at nine o'clock in the morning and at 12 o'clock at day and seven o'clock at night. They were making sure we had the information and we could give it out to the staff. If it was PPE, or what the testing uh, was going to be, surveillance, public health was making sure that we were kept abreast of what was happening in the sector.
3: Yeah, because there were long-term care institutions where staff left, and I suspect that they partly left because they didn't feel like they were supported by procedures that would keep them safe.
4: I must say, they gave us what we wanted. Everybody was so scared as to what would have happened to Cassaville because it's the largest home, it's communal washrooms, and... They were scared, so I mean there was nothing I could ask for that they didn't rush it over.
7: So every every week, almost every day, we had new protocol to follow and and new information to process from you know an, an internal perspective, being inside the facility as well as the external, I suppose, stressors and. Uh, difficulties coming from the media and, and reading things in the media, and so you're you're not only getting bombarded with fear and anxiety through your day to day life, but also externally through the media. And and so I, for myself, I know I I kept my uh, media to a very <laughs> minimum.
4: Yes. So when you were told that you're going to be the IPAC lead for the home, it sounds great until you have to step into the shoe and, and do the work that's expected from making sure housekeeping was cleaning properly to staff changing gloves to completing the audits, the hand hygiene audits, ensuring that the right PPE was given when there's an outbreak, ensuring that staff were adhering to the guidelines. Although our home is so large, we have shared rooms and two residents to a room. And so we had to create our own little um, sick bays. So we had identified four beds on each unit, each of the larger units that would be kept vacant. And so when someone was tested, and they were positive, they were moved over from their regular rooms into the sick bay, and um, someone would be assigned to those residents. So I wouldn't be looking after well residents along with the ill residents because you had to be so careful. I was like, you could send me an email at midnight, and you would get a response. Um, it, it was just crazy. It was crazy, but we did stick to our path. And, you know, we said we were going to keep everybody safe. That was one of the things we would say to the families. We are trying our best to keep everyone safe.
7: So our activity calendar typically involved a lot of larger group activities. So when the pandemic started, we had to immediately stop any larger group activities it really forced us to think outside the box. Because even within the first two, three weeks, uh, we certainly saw a lot a lot of decline. And so our main goal was to to maintain a, a level of happiness throughout the facility as much as we could. So we started doing um, more mobile activities. So one thing that we did uh, was a mobile coffee cart. And we went to each room, visited with the residents and offer them a coffee, chatted for a little bit. Oftentimes we would put on fun music and dance. <laughs> Dancing became really key. <laughs> it's such a
3: huge ask on staff.
4: Yes, it was. It was. But I think um, when you've dedicated yourself to working in long-term care and that's what you've done for a long time, you just keep doing it. You just get up every day and and, and you go. So it wasn't, I think a lot of us that went through uh, working in COVID, it was you were going to work and coming home to your families. And so that risk was always, you could take it home and give it to your families. So that was a big worry.
7: Especially for us, um, having to facilitate many of those conversations it's uh, personally, I, I know, um, especially as I can reflect on it a bit more now and in these days, having to witness a lot of those conversations because we were we were the main facilitators of family communication for many months um, was really, really draining, really emotionally exhausting. and.
4: We asked a lot of questions and we were kind of nosy and say, why can't we do this? And it worked in our favor. And I know my boss and everybody else, they always say, go sleep, go to sleep. I said, no, I'm checking for my results. I'm seeing if anybody called me. I have a great team. Um, I would not give them up for nothing. They were great. And we're keeping the ship anchored. We had a total of seven residents that were COVID positive and all survived. We had a resident that was 100 years old and we were like, oh, he's not going to make it. He's not going to make it. And you know what? He recovered and um, he's still there. He's now 102 actually. Still kicking.
3: I encountered Nora Loreto in Andre Picard's excellent book, Neglected No More, which is about long-term residential care and the pandemic. I noticed Nora right away, even though Picard only gave her one sentence. I thought, whoa, what is this journalist from Quebec City doing? Because she was out there doing guerrilla demography about residential deaths in long-term care. Very cool. And she was the only person collecting trans-Canada death statistics in the heart of the pandemic and from the beginning. So I was immediately curious.
1: Yeah. Um, so I was paying very close attention to the news. I think like everybody was. I would say from the beginning, the obsession that politicians had with clearing space in hospitals was the first indication that they saw long term care as being an offloading place, right? A place to offload patients within hospitals to clear up you know, space in hospitals in case there was an influx of patients. We didn't hear about was the conditions within those facilities, and so the first big report that happened in Quebec, and it was it was really the first big report in Canada of of, of something like this happening was at the Heron residence in Dorval. Now, this was a couple of weeks after Lynn Valley Care Facility in uh, British Columbia uh, was a place of, of increasing infections and mass death. And it was also after news started to break uh, from Washington and then increasingly New York State that long-term care facilities were like l- locations of mass death. And when I went back to look at how much we knew at the time, I mean, of course, this was warned uh, in the joint WHO-China, Government of China document saying, you know, these facilities are are at risk, just like prisons, just like um, other residential facilities. And so the news breaks in the Montreal Gazette from Aaron Durfell, their health reporter, that um, there had been multiple casualties as a result of the pandemic. And as that report goes live, you then also start to see in the French media. And so the first time that I actually added the numbers together, we had Lynn Valley, we had a couple of locations in Ontario, like in Pinecrest, in Bob Cage, and, the, and then in Quebec, the CHSL de saint uh René de Veyc, um, uh Vigie, Saint-Dominique, and then the Heron. And so I added these together in uh, almost mid-April, I think it was April 13th. And By then, I was laid off, and so I really had nothing else to do. I knew that if these numbers weren't going to be tracked very carefully, then they would vanish because the numbers were not being held in a central location. There was no national website where we can just cross-reference that the numbers were
3: correct. It just strikes me, Nora, how powerful this work is, because you were creating a knowledge base. In an essential way, you were pulling out information That was vanishing as it was happening. And you were making that information public. And this wasn't happening for the long-term care sector, just like it wasn't happening for racialized people. Canada did not want to know that COVID was targeting specific groups of people. We wanted to hold on to a we're all in this together narrative.
1: And so I, I, you know, put it out on, online. I said, who's counting this? Which, which news organizations are counting this? And, and no one was. And so I started. And, and the first, that first count, I think, was already at 250. I mean, I updated it two nights ago and we're well past 18,000 deaths. But at the time, that was, that was all we had were these little hints. So I started to resort to combing the obituaries in Quebec, where the person was residing when they died and if they died from COVID. By the end of May, we finally had the official data come out from the province of Quebec where we actually could see that facility by facility death count.
3: I'm so impressed. You're, well, Nora, you could be a historian. You're reading obituaries. Future historians will thank you for all of this.
1: Yeah, it was to document history unfolding. Exactly. Um, Because, as I said, the, the way that the numbers were coming out at that time, they would just vanish you know, I was logging hundreds of deaths every night, and I thought there's no better thing that I can be doing right now to help preserve the memory of all of this. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I was really thinking about how little we know about the Spanish flu. You know, I grew up with the knowledge of the Spanish flu because it affected my family directly. It, it killed my, my great-grandfather's first wife. It killed other members of the family as well, uh, children that, that didn't survive. But when you were looking at the coverage, there was, there was absolutely no popular memory at all about what a mass pandemic in Canada looks like.
3: We have heard very clearly that this is a historical moment when our elder care system is in the spotlight. So we need to give long-term care a long, critical look. We need to examine the physical structure of care facilities, their age, their potential for containing infectious disease. We need to think about the long-term care workforce, the waged workforce, and the family workforce. And we really must question having for-profits involved in providing and making money from providing care to some of the most vulnerable people in our society. This is a national humanitarian crisis. And so at the
1: start, my goal, and then this eventually became my goal with the book, my goal was to to write this down so that politicians couldn't say, well, we didn't know. At least you can say, but here is what we know. Here's what you knew. And you refused to do the things that would have saved lives.
3: That was episode one of COVID in the House of Old, a podcast hosted by me, Megan Davies. This episode featured the voices of Pat Armstrong, Jim Struthers, Rachel Barkin, Noreen Grange, Michelle LeBlanc, and Nora Loretto. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Cohen Hammond. This episode featured music by Hiroki Tanaka. This project would not be possible without the support of a Jack and Doris Shadbolt Fellowship in the Humanities from Simon Fraser University. Stay tuned for more episodes.
0: When you are sick for the last time in your life, walking around shaky, frail, With your final illness, feeling the space between yourself and other people grow wider and wider, like the gap between a rowboat and its dock, you will begin to see the plants and flowers of your youth. And they will look as new to you as they did back then, Little lavender bouquets, arranged in solar systems, delicate beyond your comprehension. The dark gold buttons with the purple manes, the swan white throat splashed with radish-colored flecks, the thread-like stalks that end in asterisks. They are where you left them, by the bus stop bench, along the chain-link fence behind the widow's house. And you shall squat down on your heels and gaze at them, just as you did before, because this restitution of your heart
1: is coming.